16, 14 through 18. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things and they ridiculed him. What did they hear? Well, let's go up. Verse 10. Luke 16, verse 10. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one, love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. In our text for this morning, the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. And since then, the good news of the kingdom is preached and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another, commits adultery. And he who marries a woman, divorced from her husband, commits adultery. Grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God stands forever. So is the church supposed to gather for the joy of the sinner or for the conviction of the sinner? When the church gathers on a Sunday morning, we've all come into this place. Is the purpose of our gathering, is it for the joy of the sinner or is it for the conviction of the sinner? Was the message of Jesus one of love for the worst of sinners or was it a message of warning to cease from sinning? Did Jesus give a message of love for sinners of all types? The, the scoundrel, the tax collector, the thieves, the prostitutes, all of these people. Did Jesus' message, was it a message of love for the sinner? Or was it a message of um, warning to stop sinning? Think of the churches that you know and try to categorize them. And most of us can do this with a little thought of, even if you don't personally know the church, just kind of the ethos, the reputation of the church. Are they a church that is mostly about just kind of a universal love? They classified under, you know, they just are about love and, and they, they, that's their only message is acceptance and affirmation of everyone and anything. And then you have the other church, which is all about legalism and rules and harshness. And those are kind of the two categories that, that churches fall under. But what if the church is not to pick between these two realities, but pursue them both? What do we see in the life of Jesus? At first sight, when we, that's my question. What is the church supposed to gather for? Is it gathering for the joy of the sinner or the, for the conviction of sin in the sinner? We'll try to get that resolved. But at first, this section doesn't, it's kind of a tough uh, mixture of things, right? Like you read these and there's some kind of obscure 
language, and then there's this ending bit about divorce, and you're like, what? How, do all, how does all of this fit together? And upon my first few readings of it, I'm like, I don't know what I'm going to do here with this passage. This is interesting. Um, but, but, but believing as we do, and as I'm trying to, to plant in this church, we, we want to take the whole counsel of the Word of God, which means that on Sunday morning, I don't get up here and say, I don't want to deal with that. Let's go to the next one. That means we, we're trying to dig in what is the point here? What's the message that's trying to come across to us here? What is the theme of this pericope, of this section? And, and at first sight, you can't see it, but try to back up a little bit and, and get where this is coming in the context of the narrative of Luke. This is sandwiched here. There's a little uh, money sandwich. We have the parable we talked about last week of the dishonest manager who was commended for his shrewdness. It was all about using your wealth for eternal purposes. And then next week is going to be the rich man and Lazarus, which is the guy that the Lazarus sits out the gate of the unnamed rich man. Having a name was a big deal. The rich man doesn't even have a name. The poor man's name is Lazarus, and he dies, and I don't want to ruin next week. That's the parable for next week. These two parables about money have this little section sandwiched into the middle of them. The Pharisees, as we heard when we started out, they're not happy with Christ's teaching regarding money. They sneer at him. The ESV, our Pew Bible, says that they ridiculed him. But there's, the language there is kind of like looking down their nose or sneered at him. We don't really know all of the reason why, but it's a negative reaction. It could possibly be that because Jesus had no money, they think, well, of course he thinks money's no good. Look at him. We don't really know, but they, they don't like Jesus and this harshness, this hard standard over money, which is that... You cannot love God and love money at the same time. You love one, you hate the other. You can be devoted to one and despise the other, but you can't love them both. And the Pharisees, they sneered at that because they wanted their money. They, they had these divided interests. Christ's call, they're not happy with this word from Jesus because Christ's call is to give all of yourself for the furthering of God's kingdom. It's too extreme for them. It's, it's too radical. But when you, you take that idea and just roll it back one more step in the context, it's interesting that the Pharisees are complaining about Jesus being too strict on money. Because just back in chapter 15, verse 1, their complaint, or 15, verse 2, their complaint is that Jesus was too liberal in his religion. Because you remember in chapter 15, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled this time, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. They're mad at Jesus because his religion is too inclusive. He's he's too welcoming of too many people. And now they're looking down on him because he has too high of a standard. Well, which is it, Pharisees? Get it together. Is Jesus too liberal in his love for all kinds of sinners? Or is he too extreme in his law keeping, saying that even your money must be devoted first and foremost to God? Only a chapter and a half later, they're upset with Jesus because he's being too radical in his call for righteousness. 
Which brings us to our big idea and kind of what I was trying to force us to in this conflict of what kind of a, what do we gather for? Is it for the joy and the saving of sinners or is it for conviction of sin in the sinner? Which, which is it? Well, the big idea from our passage this morning is that we should not confuse, do not confuse Christ's compassion for sinners as his condoning of sin. Don't confuse Christ's compassion for sinners as his condoning of sin. This is what he's getting after the Pharisees for. He's accusing them of sin, loving God, but loving money. Having two masters, which is not possible, you love the one and hate the other. And they actually loved their money. They had their elevated positions in their community. Everyone thought well of them. They are respected. They had money. People would look at them and say... Well, they obviously have it all together. How can you be that well off? How can you be that well put together and not have the blessing of God on your life? And what they were is they were justified. This is what Jesus says, right? They were justified before men. Men thought, look at these nice people. They've got it together. They try to do the right things. They're justified before men. They looked so manicured and polished on the outside. But inside, what does Jesus say they were? Their hearts were far from God. And God looks not at the outward appearance of man. We know from the, from the anointing of King David, God does not look at the outward appearance, but at the heart. And these people, though they were justified on the outside, their sinful hearts did not escape the notice of God. We should listen to the rebuke here. There's a rebuke here. How much weight do we give the world's opinions of ourselves? How much weight do we put into what everyone in the world thinks of our lives? How much, I mean, how much, have a, how high of an opinion, how much weight do we give the world's opinions over our lives? How much of our lives are validated and affirmed by the standards that the world has set. How much of our lives are we pursuing our, our wealth and using in our wealth, our wealth in a way that reflects the world, that the world can affirm everyone spends their money this way. Therefore, you're justified in front of the world for doing the things that you do with your money. But where is your heart? You, your, your time, are, are we using the standard, the world's standards of usage for time in a way that justifies our own, but really our hearts are far from God? Are we pursuing a reputation in the way that the world does? How can someone commit to follow Christ and yet still follow the world's standards? How can we say as we gather on a Sunday morning, I want to worship, I want to glorify God with my whole self and then walk out the doors and then work hard to be glorified in the sight of the world at the same time. And Jesus says, you can't. You'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You'll love the one and hate the other. And that's what infuriates the Pharisees. That's what has them sneering down at Jesus. J.C. Ryle puts it like this in his commentary. He says, thousands on every side, the irreligious and the religious, thousands on every side are continually trying to do the things which Christ pronounces impossible. They are endeavoring to be friends of the world and friends of God at the same time. Their consciences are so far enlightened that they feel they must have some religion. 
that their consciences are so far enlightened, they, they have enough sight, enough knowledge to know they should have some religion, but their affections are so chained down to earthly things, they never come up to the mark of being true Christians. And hence, they live in a constant state of discomfort. They have too much religion to be happy in the world, and they have too much of the, in the, of the world in their hearts to be happy in their religion. They have too much religion to be happy in the world, knowing they should be looking for something higher, but they have too much of the world in themselves to be happy in their religion. Christ's call is a free call to sinners of radical discipleship. This next verse we get to, so this is kind of the, the justifying yourselves before men. What's exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Then we move into verse 16. Law and the prophets were until John, and since then, the good news of the kingdom. That's just, that's just a summary of what's going on in the Old Testament up until the preaching of John the Baptist and Jesus. The message of the gospel takes on a different air of repentance and believe the good news of the gospel. Repent and believe in the Messiah which is Jesus Christ. There's this turn of the preaching, but there's this interesting statement. Law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom is preached and everyone forces his way into it. What does that mean? (laughs) Everyone forces his way into it. And you can read lots of different opinions. There's a verse in Matthew that says the violent take it by force as the way that Matthew puts this statement from not this exact one, but another time, a similar statement that the violent take it by force. What, what is going on with this, with this saying? Everyone forces their way into the kingdom. The most consistent idea that I think this is representing is that that everyone means, when he's saying everyone forces their way into it, this is no longer just a Jew or a righteous person religion, right? When it was the, the Jewish faith was you're going to temple, you're observing the laws, you're kosher, you're doing all of these rules, and, and, and those are the people who could be brought into the kingdom. But now the news of the gospel is going out, and everyone, meaning Jew and Gentile, those self-righteous and those who are clearly unrighteous, what? They can force their way. They are coming into the kingdom. So that's the everyone. It is not restricted to a certain race or certain ethnic group or a certain socioeconomic status. It's not reduced or restricted to any certain group. Everyone is able to force their way into it. For everyone entering, that's the everyone, it is a forceful entrance. Getting through the narrow way is serious business. Broad is the road that leads to destruction. But narrow is the way that leads to life, and few are that find it. The narrow road is a forceful entrance. Coming into the kingdom has some force to it, some violence to it. The point is that even though the sinners are entering, they are entering at the cost, the death of their sinful life. Those coming into the kingdom are coming in with force, the force of conviction, the force of repentance, faith, and forsaking all that does not honor God and pursuing the will of God, seeking to do what He commands and what pleases Him. Are, does, that, does that description of entering the kingdom, forceful entering the kingdom, 
forsaking all that the world tries to, to put on you, forsaking your own sin, forsaking your own selfish interests, and entering the kingdom, does that forceful description reflect your entrance into the kingdom in any way at all? Are you entering the kingdom in this way? And if not, you have to ask yourself, how much of my life is actually entering the kingdom and how much of my life is just doing what is comfortable? How much of my life is honestly striving to enter the kingdom, the forceful entry into the kingdom? What things in your life do you actually strive for? This is the rebuke that Jesus is getting in, the, in this section here. What in your life do you actually strive for? How much energy do you devote to strive with your money? Striving to make sure I'm well provided for. Striving to make sure that I cut the, cut the spending off of here so that I have enough money to do this thing. And you, people devote a lot of time thinking about how do I take care of my money. I had a, my Friday off this morning. I spent an hour just kind of looking over the books and trying to figure everything out. And I devoted a solid hour of looking at debts and incomes and all these things and trying to figure out here's how we can put all these things in place. Do you spend... That's a striving after a worldly thing, which is a fine thing to do. I'm not knocking doing planning, a financial planning. But what I, the rebuke is that, is there any striving of that type in your pursuit of the kingdom that is devoted to pursuing Christ? Does that compare to the energy that you are using to seek God? How much energy is devoted to your physical health? It's good. Physical training is of some value. Timothy tells us that we should be working out. We should try to eat right. We should try to be healthy. These are important things. But we live in a world obsessed with their physical appearance. Who spends all of their time trying to work out, eat right, increase their appearance. All of this striving in all these ways that don't really matter. And the question is, are you striving for Christ and His kingdom? The demand from Christ is that we love Him with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, and all our strength. That is the call. That's right out of Deuteronomy 6, repeated by Jesus in the Gospels, Mark 12, 30. If you want to look it up and check me on that. Deuteronomy 6, 5, Mark 12, 30. This call to love God with everything. Do you get the conflict? What is going on in the life of Jesus? We see this call, this love for the sinner. Yet, don't, don't confuse Christ's compassion for his sinners, for sinners, as his condoning of sinfulness. That 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 both calls exist of the sinner to come and the sinner to repent of their sinfulness. God's law. And his standard of righteousness does not change. He's calling for love and for trust, for repentance and obedience. Not a single dot of an eye can be removed from God's righteous standard. It is easier for the world to burn up than for God's word to change or to fail. That's why divorce is brought up. And we're not going to spend a lot of time on divorce this morning. We don't have time. And, but the, the other reason, not just for time's sake... The other reason is this, this is used as an illustration. There are many places that we could look that speak about divorce. Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 19, Mark chapter 10, 
1 Corinthians chapter 7, have a lot to say about the rules or the thoughts on divorce, what God thinks of divorce. But here in this passage, he uses divorce as an illustration, a commentary, an observation on the sinfulness of divorce. Now, this puts us in a a tense spot, I know, because we live in a culture where divorce is touching everyone's lives. I can think of many in my own personal lives where divorce is very close to home. So we read these passages, and, and, and there are, if you look at the Matthew 5, 19, Mark 10, 1 Corinthians 7, there's biblical justifications at times for divorce. That there are. But... If all we want to do in, in, in our study of divorce is make it okay, we've totally missed the point. And the point is that God does hate divorce. And the reality, the reason why I feel like it's okay to say this, I don't even know that the divorce people that I know would say, hey, it's all okay. Why? Because most of them are now in another marriage. <laughs> and what I would say to them is you need to fight for the marriage that you're in right now. The point that Jesus, though, is making, why he's bringing this up, is that um, is this slap against the Pharisees. Divorce is hated by God because it is a breaking of a covenant. It is a promise before God of one man, one woman, one lifetime. That, that is a covenant before God. And God hates it because it's a breaking of a covenant. And this is a huge slap to the Pharisees at this time. Okay, And the reason why we know this, we can go back and look. The Pharisees had a very free idea of divorce. Basically, if your wife um, burnt your toast in the morning, if she cooked your meal too much, it was kind of grounds for a divorce. So being a bad cook. Now, that's, but beyond that, even were that's bad. The, the, what would be taught by, I think Hillel was the name, but was this idea that if a husband saw a woman who he found more attractive than his current wife, he didn't want to commit adultery. I mean, to, to go and to fornicate and to have relations with this woman would be adultery. So you know the secret to how you can um, have marital affairs with someone who's not your wife. You know what you do? You divorce your current wife, you marry the other one, and all of a sudden, voila, bada bing, man, you're no longer committing adultery because now this woman that you found more attractive is actually your wife, so you're no longer committing adultery. That was what was going on at this time from some of the Jewish teachers. And so Jesus is bringing up this illustration to say, look, God's law has not changed. You can play around with the rules all you want. And you can think that, that because my accepting of sinners is my condoning of sin, but no, Christ's standard of sinfulness is just as high as ever. How are these things fitting together? Well, the Pharisees had this righteousness on the outside, but God knew their hearts. They had constructed a system that said, oh, it's okay to live life this way. God doesn't really care as long as you do it by these certain rules. But they were seeking their own sinful pleasure and not the purposes of God. God's serious hatred of sin has not faded away. God's serious hatred of sin has not faded away. Now, this is, this is where I get in trouble sometimes. I've heard, I've, I've heard the complaints. Darren's heavy. The reality is, if you, you lose 
the heaviness of sin, you lose the joy of what the gospel is. The gospel becomes mush. It becomes God forgiving you for nothing. It becomes, it becomes mush. What, don't confuse Christ's compassion for sinners as his condoning of sin. What we see as we work through the gospel of Luke is this full picture of who Christ is and what he taught. Some swing to one end of the pendulum and they emphasize Christ's radical love of sinners. And they preach a message of just basically don't worry about it. Everything's okay. God loves everybody. It doesn't matter what you do. Of course, that's, that's difficult when, you know, a, a mass murderer were to walk through the doors. I think we all at some point uh, have a problem with, no, God does not love everything. Everyone's got their limit. But that's the message that they like to share. Everyone's okay. God loves everything. Sin is no big deal. That's one end of the pendulum. The other end is the people who only stress God's serious call for righteousness, thinking that salvation then comes through your observance of some sort of strict law which then condemns everyone because we can't keep it. But the reality lies in the middle of, these, of this pendulum swing. Not saying, not, not, de- not denying the reality that no one is beyond the grasp of God's redemption. And the prodigal son rebelled against the father, took off running. That's the parable we just did a few weeks ago. Comes back to the father and the father is glad to redeem him. The father is glad to save the son. Jesus has great joy in rescuing the most rebellious of sinners. But that doesn't mean now he's all of a sudden okay with sin either. That doesn't mean he's okay with sin either. He's calling for a total undoing. The sinner that he calls to himself, he's calling for a total undoing of their worldly desires. For them to be reoriented around that which is truly worthy, around Christ himself. It's a call for freedom in him, yes, absolutely, and a freedom that is found in taking up your cross. So my call, does a sinner, do we come into the church this morning to hear the message of, of joy in rescuing sinners or conviction over sin? What does the church gather for? And the church gathers for both. Church gathers for both. Christ has a high call. And what we do when we come and we confront the law of God, we realize, I do not deserve to be in God's presence. I do not deserve to take communion. I do not deserve a a minute of God's mercy and grace. And yet, what has He done? He has sent His Son. Jesus Christ has come to the earth. So the call is to hear, is to hear both of these calls today. To cross, trust in the forgiveness found in Christ. And the call to be killing sin before it kills you. The heartbeat of the gospel is to hear the call of Christ. To feel the conviction of your sin. We ought to feel that conviction. And then turn from it and flee to Christ with all our energies. Putting to death that which displeases the one to the one whose joy it was to rescue us. So how do we wage this war? How, putting death to sin, trusting in Christ, how do we wage this war? How do we find the power to be killing sin? We fight sin by finding a superior joy. These all coalesce. They all come together. This, this power to fight this sin, this power to fight this worldliness is in finding a superior joy. And it is the superior joy that is found in confessing that these are these sins that I do live with and do struggle with and do commit. And then finding the joy in fellowship, redemption, 
found in Jesus Christ. We fight sin by finding a superior joy. The same word of God that comes down as law and crushes us, calls us to a righteous life. That word, that same word, comes and gives us promises that will not fail. That those who he has called, those he predestined, predestined, he's called, those he's called, he's justified, those he's justified, he's glorified. God has made promises that will not fail. The unchanging word that convicts us of our sin is the unchanging word that promises our forgiveness through the blood of Christ. That's why Jesus takes this hard line. If we say, all oh, the law passes away, how can you count on anything God promises? But it hasn't. The law, the hard line is not passed. We are sinners. We are sinful in the sight of God. But the good news in that is that God is a God who keeps His Word. The Word that calls you to forsake all worldly things that temporarily satisfy you is the Word that promises ultimate satisfaction in Christ alone. Don't confuse Christ's compassion for sinners as His condoning of sin. And don't forget. Remember that. Don't confuse it. Don't forget it. But don't forget His promises to all those who are His. Why we can be bold in remembering our sinfulness is we are bold in remembering a substitute who came and gave His life for our sins that we might be adopted into God's family. As we come to communion, we remember this is a meal that has a promise attached to it. There at the Last Supper, Jesus eats this meal and He says, I I will not eat of this bread, drink of this vine until we eat it again in my new kingdom. There's a promise that comes with communion. Jesus is fasting wine in heaven right now. He is fasting wine until the day when all those who are His are gathered into with Him. The great marriage feast of the Lamb. And there we will all celebrate together. We will celebrate together all that Christ has done. This is a promise He has made to all who would repent and trust Him. Just as sure as sin remains sin... Forgiveness remains forgiveness, and no promise of God's will fail. Let's pray. Father, as we, and your Holy, as your Holy Spirit does its work of conviction, bringing to light our sinfulness, God, my desire, my prayer, my heart is that it would then heighten our joy in the knowledge of our forgiveness through Jesus Christ. Help every ear in this place this morning that only hears the hard side of this message. Give us ears to hear the promise that comes with this news. The news that our sin is serious. The news that our transgression is real. The news that comes along with it that there is a Redeemer. There is one who has bought our redemption. May that news ring out the loudest for our ultimate joy in you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.